Praise God, looking around the room, seeing all of you. Okay, good. We got some light in the house. It's good to see your faces. I want to remind you before we get into the Word today, if you have your Bible, actually, you can open to Acts chapter 13. Go ahead and open there, Acts chapter 13. Uh, but just a reminder, time is running out for our trip to Israel. Um, while we're there, we actually decided recently that we're going to be planting a tree there in Israel in my father's name. So that's going to be a special time and special uh, ceremony we're going to do there. Um, but I want to encourage you, if you can be a part of this trip, sign up as soon as possible, okay? Um, we're following uh, the first mission trip of the church here in Acts 16. And, you know, if you come to Israel with us, you're going to see a lot of these places that we talk about as we go through the Word of God. Um, but last week we talked about how the church in, in Antioch had listened, right? They listened to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit instructed them, set apart uh, Saul and Barnabas, and they were to take the gospel out into the world. And so they take John Mark with them. They travel to the island of Cyprus. And there's no record of any fruit from their trip until they come before the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. And it was actually God's judgment on the sorcerer, Illimus, that proved to Sergius Paulus that the gospel was true. And so we saw in that story that there are times when resistance to the gospel actually helps it to be received. And so we're going to continue reading today. Uh, they're in verse 13 of chapter 13. And I wonder if you could stand with me one more time just for the reading of the word. We want to reverence the word of the Lord in this way as we stand to read God's word. Acts chapter 13. Beginning there in verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted hand, armed, he, left, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we continue to follow uh, this first missionary journey of Paul, we see there it says that Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos and they come to Perga in Pamphylia. And it says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now I want you to see something here. Don't miss this. This missionary group is now described for the first time as Paul and his companions. We see this change here because previously, just as recently as verse 7, the group was described as Barnabas and Saul, but going forward, it's Paul's leadership that's going to come to the forefront. How awesome is that? That Barnabas was the one who went and found Paul in Tarsus, right? He called him to step into ministry in Antioch, and now the apprentice becomes the leader. What a beautiful thing when those we pour our lives into actually exceed us, right? Now, there's no indication about how Barnabas felt about this, but I, I can't help but thinking that as a son of encouragement, he would have been excited to see Paul step into his calling. And so they leave the island of Cyprus. After journeying across the island, they had preached in the synagogues there. And so they leave Cyprus and they come to Perga. And it says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I shared a little bit about this last week. We don't know exactly why John Mark went home to Jerusalem. In the text of this chapter, the Greek word means simply to go away or depart. It says he just left. He he departed. And I don't know why. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he was afraid of what was ahead of them. Maybe he lost confidence because at this point we know that Paul was very ill, according to Galatians chapter 4. Or or maybe, just maybe, he resented the team of his cousin Barnabas and Saul now becoming Paul and his companions, right? Like, what's the deal? I didn't sign up for that. I'm here with my cousin, okay? But as we're going to see in Acts 15, Paul does not appreciate the fact that John Mark left them. Acts 15, he used a different word there regarding John Mark's departure, and it really means to revolt or or to rebel against it. It's, It's what you say, somebody runs away, right? And that's the word used to describe the simple weaving of chapter 13. Paul says he's revolted. He's, he, he's, he's deserted us. And so whatever it is, Paul sees it as a desertion. This guy didn't follow through. And whether this is a weakness on John Mark's part or Paul's part, I'm not going to judge. But just so you know, whatever the reason is, Paul takes this very personally. And it's not going to be resolved for quite some time. And this reminds me that as, as great and godly as Paul and Barnabas were, they were men full of the Holy Spirit, right? As, as great as they were, they still had problems, okay? There were still some people problems, right? Can I just say relational problems don't go away when you reach a certain level of maturity in Christ, right? There's always friction. There's always conflict in our lives, right? And, and, and I tell uh, couples when I counsel with them so often that conflict isn't bad. It's how you respond to conflict, right? It can be good or bad. But I, but I want you to see this here because this is is going to surface again later. Verse 14 says, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Here's this pattern again. They're going to the synagogue first. Now I want to show you a map. We have a a map here so you can see kind of where they go, right? So it's Antioch and Syria. They head out to Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus. 
it's in Paphos where they, they minister and, and where Sergius Paulus receives the gospel. And then they go from Paphos over to Perga. It's Perga. It's not Pergo, okay? This is not where you get your flooring from. This is Perga, okay? This, this harbor city that they sail into. And from there, they go to Antioch in Pisidia, which is about 135 miles inland to the north. Now, this whole area, you can see there on the map, is what's known as Galatia. And so the book of Galatians is a letter that Paul would write to the churches that would be established in this area. And so I want you to understand this. Galatia is not a city. Ephesus is a city. Corinth is a city. But Galatia is this region. And they come to Antioch. And this is, again, not the Antioch they left. That was Syrian Antioch. Remember, there was this ruler that went around and he was naming all these towns Antioch. I'll call you Antioch and I'll call you Antioch and you're Antioch, right? All these, these cities. And so this is Pisidian Antioch. It's up in the mountains. Now, if you give me a choice of where to go, I'll go to the mountains every time. I love the mountains, right? Pisidian Antioch is about 3,600 feet up. And some scholars believe that, well, Paul may have caught a disease. Again, Galatians tells us he was very ill, and that's why he brings the gospel to them. Maybe he caught malaria, they say, when he was down in the lower uh, land there. And so where do you want to go when you're running a fever up into the mountains where it's a little bit cooler, right? And so it's healthier up there. And so it says this, though. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, this is really cool. And it's, it's part of the reason why Paul went to the synagogue first, as I shared last week. You see, a first century synagogue had a certain order to their service. There was the liturgy in every service in the synagogue. It began with a Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Of course, they declared that in Hebrew. My Hebrew is not that good. Um, but after the Shema, there's the prayer. And after the prayer, there's this reading of the law, what they would call the Haftorah, right? As they call it, different portions of Scripture. They would have that reading, and then once they were done reading that, they would have a rabbi come and comment. Now, if there was a visiting rabbi, of course, they would invite them to come and speak. And so as Paul comes into this region, he's a visiting rabbi. Remember, he studied under Gamaliel, right? And so he's in the synagogue, and they say, Paul, why don't you come up here, man? Why don't you come up here and, and share an encouraging word from the Lord? Now, here's why this is so cool, right? First of all, what an opportunity for Paul, right? He's got the floor. You got something to share? Paul's like, yeah, I got something to share, right? I got something to tell you. But, but this is also cool because this is the first recorded written down sermon of the Apostle Paul. And, and it's big. I mean, the whole thing's written down, presumably. If you want to study the preaching of Paul, study this sermon because it's him preaching the gospel. Beginning in verse 16, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Right away, he addresses both groups that are in the synagogue on a typical Sabbath, right? Both the Jews and those that we would call near Jews, those who were admirers of the Jewish religion, but hadn't made a full commitment to Judaism. They were one that was known as the God-fearers, right? Verse 17 says, The God of this people, Israel, he chose our fathers, and he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, I love how he says this, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, when Paul says this took 450 years, where does he get that number from? Well, he's counting 400 years in Egypt, right? 
And then there's 40 years in the wilderness, and then there was about 10 years where they were conquering and, and settling in the land in, up until the time of Judges. And then the period of Judges is about 400 years, and it ends with Samuel, the, the last judge who anointed Saul as the first king. Okay, that's before 1000 BC. And, and so really, Paul here, he is communicating the rebellious history of his people. Well, look at verse 21. He says, when they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. That's who he's named after, right? Same tribe, tribe of Benjamin. He said he gave him for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will of this man's all offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. In this survey of Israel's history, Paul notes some very important events, right? There's the, the choosing of the patriarchs. There's the deliverance from Egypt. There's the time in the wilderness. There's the conquest, of course, of Canaan, the time of judges. There's the creation of the monarchy. But all of this, understand all of this, he's saying it all led up to Jesus. All of it, it pointed to him. This survey of, of Israel's history it demonstrates that God has a plan for history. And I think this morning we need to understand that we have a connection to that plan as well. Amen? That God has a plan for history. Jesus is the goal of history. And as we are in Jesus, we are in the midst of God's great plan of redemption for the world. And, and then using the examples of John the Baptist and these Jewish rulers, Paul shows how people both received as well as rejected Jesus. Look at verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Can I just say, John the Baptist responded to Jesus in the right way. He prepared the hearts of others for Jesus, and he saw Jesus for who he really was. John knew Jesus was one greater than all others. He knew that Jesus was more than just a, a good teacher. He was the Lord God who we must answer to. And he says, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. That statement shows that John knew Jesus was high above him, way above him, right? You see, in that day, it was not uncommon for a great teacher to have disciples follow him, for a rabbi to have disciples follow him. And it was expected that the disciples would serve the teacher. However, that arrangement came to be abused so often, and so the leading rabbis set up some certain rules. They said, well, here are some things that are too demeaning for a teacher to expect of his disciple. And it was decided that for a teacher to expect his disciple to untie the strap of his sandals, that's too much, okay? That's too demeaning. But listen to me here. John insists that, that not that he wouldn't do that for Jesus, but that he's not even worthy to do that for Jesus, right? I'm not even worthy to, to untie his sandals. And so this is really the first part of his sermon here. If you're going to break it down and outline it and understand it's all about the anticipation of the coming Messiah, what Paul was doing here was something that, that Jews were fond of, of hearing. It's called historical retrospection. They would often rehearse their history to other Jews. Psalm 107, a great example of that. There, there are a couple of psalms that do that, right? Why? Because they talk about their history. 
Why did they do this? To encourage them, to remind them, yes, God worked in the past, but he's still working today in the present, right? And he's going to continue to work in the future. They, they would always tell their story from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, and, and that's what Paul's doing here as he begins this sermon. And it's exactly what Stephen did, remember, in Acts chapter 7, right? When he preached, he went through this whole litany of their histories, even more detailed than what Paul shares. But look at verse 26. He says, brothers, he's speaking to his brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So he's saying they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, but they fulfilled the utterances of the prophets right? Those who didn't really know the Scripture rejected Jesus and delivered him to Pilate to be executed. This was true even though they lived in Jerusalem, even though they were rulers among the Jews. Therefore, Jesus was executed and he was laid in a tomb. Now, his next point has everything to do with what Jesus did, right? This is what Jesus did. This is how he was received. This is how he was treated by the people who read the scriptures. He was mistreated and killed by Bible students, right? I mean, these are people that are supposed to know God's word. And he's trying to get their attention, and I think he's successful at it. He's saying, you meet here every week in the synagogue, and and you read the scripture, and and so did the people in Jerusalem, but they killed the very one the prophets spoke about. And, And here's the truth today. Understand this. You can have a head that is full of God, and at the same time have a heart that's empty of him. You can have a lot of knowledge, maybe, of of Scripture, but yet not understand who he is. Jesus said this, you search the Scripture, for in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Saying to those who study the Scripture, you actually ignore the testimony of Scripture, right? Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. They took him down from the tree. In in calling the cross a tree, Paul is drawing our attention to Deuteronomy 21. And in that passage there in, in chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, the 22nd verse, it says that God curses a person who's hanged from a tree. And Paul wants to communicate that Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. He'll say the same in his letter to the churches in this area, Galatians 3.13. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone who hangs upon the tree. But here we see the most important thing is that Paul preaches a resurrected Jesus. Verse 30, underline it, highlight it, whatever you got to do. 30 is, is kind of the turning point, if you will. It says, but God raised him from the dead. These are wonderful, wonderful words. While man did his best to fight against God, listen to me, to even try to kill him, but God. God was greater than man's sin and rebellion. Listen, the world can do its worst, but I want you to know today God is still seated on the throne. The world can do its worst, but God is still seated on the throne. And all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Listen, I don't really preach the prosperity gospel here because I think it's a distortion of the gospel. Sometimes I feel like I preach the anti-prosperity gospel. But here's my heart, and I hope you hear it. I want you to know that in this life you will have trouble. 
in this life you will have trouble, but God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne, and God is still sovereign. Remember, at one point, the world became so bad that God sent a flood, but God remembered Noah. Jacob and his sons would have died uh, of a famine, but God sent Joseph to Egypt. King Saul and his army tried to kill David, but God delivered him from Saul's hand. In each of these cases, and, and in many more, understand, the line of the Messiah was at stake, but God. <laughs> so many places as you read through the Word of God where if God had not intervened, the promise of God would not have come to pass. But I want you to know today that God is true to his word. God is true to his word. He's true to his promises. And each of us, we are, are fallen, sinful men and women. We deserve punishment for our sins. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And he sent him, and Herod tried to kill him, and Herod Antipas tried to capture him, and the Jews tried to stone him, but God... They were eventually allowed to, to crucify Jesus on that cross, but God used what seemed like defeat for the salvation of the world. Listen, as, as you walk through life in Christ, th there are times, there are seasons when you'll wonder if you have the strength to carry on, but I want to tell you today, God is the strength of your life. He's the strength of your life. He is your, he is your portion forever. If you will wait on him, you'll mount up on wings as eagles. You see, Jesus went to the cross, but he rose from the grave. <laughs> he went to the cross, but he rose from the grave. He won the battle over sin and death. Now, in New Testament preaching, in the sermons in the book of Acts, this is the common thread of all New Testament biblical preaching, whether it's by Peter or by Paul. It's the resurrection. That's what you're going to hear about again and again. The resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. It's why Easter is so important to us, right? Because the resurrection is the key of Christianity. It's kind of the capstone, if you will, right? If you remove it, the whole thing falls apart because if you have a dead Savior, it doesn't know one any good, right? And so the resurrection is a necessity for there to be victory over sin and death and the promise of eternal life. And so it's always central, right? But God raised him from the dead. He went to the cross and paid that atoning death, but there was a resurrection. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. And, and according to Paul, it's the validity that the redemption found in the death of Jesus Christ that it's real, right? Listen to me. If someone dies, oh, you could say, oh, he died, and, and because he died, we're, we're saved. Well, you could say that about anybody, but this guy, Jesus, he rises from the dead, right? And that makes you think, man, he's the one. The resurrection means that Jesus truly is the unique Son of God, Psalm 2-7, right? It, it proves that he was utterly holy even in his work on the cross. Verse 31, it says, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Here the fact is simply stated. He says there's evidence from eyewitnesses, right? He was seen for many days by those who came with him. We should not miss the emphasis on events, okay, in Paul's preaching here. It's so evident that it, that it can be missed, right? He focused on things that actually happened. He's not focusing on philosophy or theology. He's saying, here's what really happened. Here's what took place. 
Boyce in his commentary says this, Christianity is not just a philosophy or a set of ethics, though it involves these things. Essentially, Christianity is a proclamation of facts that concern what God has done. Verse 32, Paul says this, and here's what we bring you today. You're going to give me opportunity to talk. Here's what I bring you today. The good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the good news of the gospel, hear me today, that what God promised, he's fulfilled. That what God promised, he's fulfilled. He promised to send a savior, and he did. Because his word cannot fail. It cannot fail. He fulfilled his promise by raising Jesus. Listen, resurrection is the victory over death. It shows us that Jesus' death for us was accepted by the Father. And so the phrase that Paul uses here, it says, he says, today I have begotten you. This, this wasn't applied to Jesus' birth, but I want you to understand it was actually applied to his resurrection. Yes, Jesus has been the Son of God. He's been one with the Father through all eternity, but it's his victory over death that made him the eternal king that God had promised to David. Because in that passage, God declared the Messiah would be to him a son. Now, this quote by Paul, that he's declaring that Jesus' resurrection showed him to be the eternal king. And so Paul's quoting a lot of Scripture here. And again, he's just standing up because he was asked to stand up and say something, right? But I think he, he probably collected his thoughts somewhat because he knows the custom in the synagogue. He knows there might be opportunity. And so as soon as they give him the green light, he's fired up. <laughs> he's ready to go. And I want you to understand he's absolutely full of the Word of God. He's full of the Scripture. And now let me say this. If you want God to use you mightily, then know as much of the Bible as you possibly can. Know as much of the Word of God as you possibly can because when you know the Word of God and you know the promises of God, then God's got something to work with. Amen? Then he's got something to work with. You're not like, oh, let me open my Bible app. I know it's in there somewhere, right? But when it's in your heart, right, and, and, and you find yourself in that situation, whether it's in your home or it's in Starbucks or a hospital, wherever it is, can I just say God can use you. God can use you to speak into the lives of people the truth of God's Word because it's actually a part of your life. It's a part of who you are. Amen? And so we got to get as much of the Word of God in us. Listen, there's just too much for me to be able to finish this sermon today. We're going to get back to it next week. But I want you to understand this as we close. Paul's an intelligent man, a very intelligent man. We already went over that, right? And so he brings up a point here in verse 31 that I want to take you back to because it's going to become an accusation later on. Verse 31, he says, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He addresses a very important issue. You see, there are some that will say, yeah, when you talk about the resurrection, here's the explanation. I think they just all hallucinated. All these guys, they, they just saw something, right? But you can't really say that all these people saw a hallucination. That doesn't explain the resurrection to me because it doesn't work like that, right? Because hallucinations only happen in certain cases to certain types of people. But one of the things that hallucinations don't do is happen to the same people, a whole bunch of people in the same exact way, right? And so we know this as we follow the story of Jesus. You have Thomas who was a doubter. He sees Jesus. 
You have Peter who, who sees Jesus alive and he's astonished. You have Mary at the tomb and she's weeping and the other women are weeping, right? You have the disciples on the road to Emmaus who are down and discouraged. And so to different people in different emotional states, the resurrected Jesus appears to them. Not only that, 1 Corinthians will tell us that Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. Here's the truth. A a group of people don't get a hallucination altogether. Maybe that happened at Woodstock. It doesn't happen too often, right? But listen to me. If 500 people see the same thing at the same time, it's usually a good indication that something actually happened. And so Paul makes it clear. The resurrection, it's an event, (laughs) It's not a hallucination. It's, it's real. And Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive right now. Listen, when we continue with Paul's sermon next week, he's going to bring up some more scripture to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And you may be here today and you might say, well, pastor, the Bible's good. There's, there's some good stories in there, but I really don't believe it to be the inspired word of God. You, you, you may think what, what Paul claims here is impossible. I mean, who can really reign forever? I'll tell you who, the one who has conquered sin and conquered death. Who in all of history has done that and then appeared to hundreds of people other than Jesus? And so if you need the evidence, I want to encourage you, keep looking for the evidence. But as you look at the evidence, I want to tell you it's pretty convincing evidence. And the real wonder of what Christ has done is that he he did it in love for you. He did it out of love for me. He did it that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. And so I ask today, why wouldn't you want to know him? Why wouldn't you want to know more about this Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to know his his amazing love for you? As we come to the communion table in just a few moments, this is what we celebrate. We remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were deserving of punishment, he paid that punishment. And if you don't know him as Lord and Savior today, but you take of these elements, I want to say they're nothing more than than juice and a cracker. But if by faith you believe in what Christ has done for you, then this is the most important thing you will do this week. This is the most important thing you will do this month is to remember what Christ has done for you, that Christ's body was broken so that you could be made whole. Would you stand with me? As you take the elements today and you prepare, I want you to meditate on that fact today. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. What he did on the cross, that he would go to the cross, that he would suffer that punishment in our place. But it didn't end there. He would rise again. And his resurrection proves that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father so that you and I can be made right with God this morning. So as you hold the bread and the cup today, as we prepare our hearts for communion, just give him thanks for what he's done for you. Come on, make it personal. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Come on, begin to lift your voice. Let's meditate on that fact as we worship before we receive the elements today. That he's faithful to his promises. That what God has promised He's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.